0: Because, of course, that's his parenting done.
1: <laughs> I have not said I won't give you any money. But by the same token, mm-hmm. you have not asked for any money. I just did. No, you didn't. Dad, can Let I us have repeat. The money, please? No, 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 no. Let us repeat from the beginning. What did you ask me specifically? I
0: said, hey, Dad, can I have a
1: tenner? No, 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 and no, go no, no. back love to forget it. to give you a tenner. There, there no, no, you no, go, no. There you no, go. No. I said, I would love I to give you a which, no, no, no. So go on. Go from the beginning for the lovely listeners. Why Why is this... Why, Starting at the why beginning. Why is this a lovely listener Because, not. lovely listener, Michael's just come in and said... I've got no money for watching Pacific Rim. And I said, No, and? I just came in and said, Can I have a tenner? No, 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 no. conversation <laughs> yeah, get... started What, what did days you
0: ask ago. at the beginning? What was the first thing you asked I, me? I, I asked, Can I go watch in Pacific Rim? And you said, No, because I no, was to no, go no, watch no, it.
1: no, 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 no no no, no, oh, no, no, no. And I
0: said, Fine, okay, I was going to go watch it on Friday. No, 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 no. And you said, Okay, then. There you yes, go. This is how the conversation
1: happened Yes, and then any part of you asked me for money? I am now. <laughs> it goes without saying. <laughs> if it goes without saying, then you don't get it, do you? Because <laughs> you said to me, so, so how can I go watch the Pacific Rim tomorrow? And I said, no, no, you just asked me for a tenner. And yes. I said, you didn't ask me for a tenner. And we went through this whole thing where you said, can I go watch your Pacific Rim? And yeah. I said, yes, you can. This is a and really... you said, can I have some money? I said, I would love to give you some money. This is a really crap parenting backdoor <laughs> argument. <laughs> Do you want some money to go watching Pacific Rim? Oh it'd be lovely if I could have some money. Alright, well what time are you going? I don't know I'm not asked yet. Alright, well you're gonna have to wait till I get home from work Probably tomorrow. later on. Yeah, good, 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 Hello everybody. Are you recording now? Yes we are. Um, what do you want? Money. Begone! Be
0: gone!
1: <laughs> be gone! Money grabbing scum child, be gone! <laughs> Are you really? Be gone. <laughs> you smell that as well? Be gone. It smells like crap. It does smell awfully of cow dung. I only
0: need 20 peas and stuff. 20p's and stuff. That's one cheap train ticket.
1: I don't need train ticket. It's not like we're doing a show or anything. Sorry.
2: <laughs> Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey kids, comics! Clark Kent has a job.
0: I just want to go on a date.
2: Faulty metaphor. Kryptonite kills. You're assuming I meant the green
0: kryptonite. I was referring, of course, to the red kryptonite which drains Superman into powers. Mm-hmm. Wrong, the gold kryptonite's the power sucker. The red kryptonite mutates Superman in some sort of weird. Guys, reality. Besides, I can just tell something's wrong when spider sense
2: is tingling. Your spider sense. I'll stay behind and putt around in the back cave with crusty old Alfred here. Ah, uh, no, I'm no Alfred, so I forget. Alfred had a job.
0: But Gina's Mr. Life. if Clark and Lois get all the good stories, I'll
2: never be a good reporter. Mm-hmm. Jimmy Jobs job pretty much made last time. Huh? Sorry. Avengers Assemble, let's get it going.
0: Hey Kids Comics!
1: <laughs> Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. And welcome to another episode of Hey
0: Kids Comics. The pinnacle of the Leyland Entertainment
2: (laughs) The Leyland Entertainment
1: Network. (laughs) (laughs) Which consists of... Singing in the shower. (laughs) show and singing, randomly, for no reason. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) Normally star-spangled man. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, dear God. Hello, lovelies. Hope you're well. Hope you're nice and tanned. This lovely summer that we're having. Unless you stand still for too long and set fire. I wish Demands would invest in some aircon. Mm. It's very warm in, very uh, in uh, the stuff the Demands HQ today, isn't it? Mm. Very, ooh, very stinky. I mean, Senior Demands smells of wee most <laughs> of the time, doesn't he? I mean, we don't like to mention that no, 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 no. in our important board meetings. He, he pays our um, imaginary bills. Yes, and there's a distinctive whiff of digested biscuit as well. Yes, <laughs> biscuits and wee. It comes to us all. Yes. (laughs) Um, Anyway, what have we got this week? Oh, I've done a new Who True Freaks, which was most excellent, talking about John Pertwee as the Doctor in an episode called The Damon Hills. No, it was just called the Damons. It was nothing to do with the Formula One race driver, right, okay. to which I just referred. To which I was greeted with a blank face from Michael. who does not follow Formula One? No. Which basically consists of watching cars go. Well, I would, <laughs> so, but it's just too fast for me. Is it? Yeah. Very good. Uh, so look for that soon. It was great. And then uh, I've also mm-hmm. done a, a hush hush on the QT top secret episode of Back to the Bins yeah. with Bob Fisher and Michael Bailey. And Paul Spatara. It's not all that secret anymore. Celebrating Superman's 75th anniversary. It's not all that hush-hush anymore. Can you guess what it's about?
0: Superman's 75th anniversary. <laughs> well, that'll do, yeah.
1: So be on the lookout for that as well, because I'm, I'm sure that will turn out most entertaining. All five hours of it. Five hours? I'm surprised we you were on the car for five hours. Anyway, what are we doing tonight? Yeah, emails. We've only got two emails tonight. Oh, I was just going to say Q&A, but we've done that we have yeah <laughs> it's not got to august the first we've not got all of them and we've not recorded it yet yeah but, but we've done it but we will we we d- d- it depends if i switch the order of the episodes around i can't decide anyway uh, our first email tonight of which there are only two is from mr rob stubbs jr he has an l in his name mm. we have an l in our name we do we are l's yep. like kryptonian <laughs> The you could be Mikel, <laughs> which I quite like. Mike L. Yeah, I like. I think that's really good. Uh, here comes Ange L. Hello, ah. Ange L. Ah. Angela. Yes, very good. Uh, nuclear weapons bad is the subject heading of Rob's email this night. Hello, Michael. Hello, Andrew. Hello to all the Leylands in jolly old England. Well, we don't care about all of them, we don't care about us. Oh, no, I don't want to say it's very jolly all that much. <laughs> It's been jolly at the minute. Lovely summer weather. You'd think, wouldn't you, that a nation that gets nothing but Cold, miserable, wintry days every single day of the year. Every day cloudy and grey. Every day cloudy and grey. Every day cloudy and grey. We've got a summer. Yeah. First genuine hot summer since 1976. Are we happy about this? Don't oh, know. God no. <laughs> it's too hot. I'm done. Yeah, the summer of '76 was the last time apparently it was really, really hot for an extended period of time. I know what you're thinking, and you're Uh, right. right. The summer of 1995 was also very warm, but it wasn't for a a length of time. We had hot spots, and then it went a bit crap. It felt hot. But in '75, in '76, it was. We had an extended summer, and the old folks have never let us forget. This has only been two weeks so far, and yet we've got people going, "Oh, it's too warm!" But no, moan, moan, whine, whine shut up I'm counting the days down till the winter it's my favourite time of the year my favourite time of the year is any time I don't have to go to work I don't <laughs> care what the weather's like any day you're not at work is a good day yeah, it is but I just like the winter I'm, I'm, I'm a mammal
0: I can afford coats and coffee and rosy cheeked women Senior
1: Hicks Senior <laughs> Hicks they're <a> so <laughs> p- <to> me <laughs> Rob had an email he at did. the beginning of that diatribe. <laughs> should we talk about the weather should we talk about the government let's move on I still have the exact same problem with the art I did last time, for exactly the same reason. Continues Rob. I can't say it's bad art, because even with my untrained artistic eye, it's well done. But I keep expecting Bob Ross to pop out and say, Look at the happy trick. I love Bob Ross's hair. You ever seen Bob Ross's <laughs> hair? You get a instant suppression if you put a pencil on his hair, he was just balanced there. <laughs> yeah, Here's where he keeps his brushes. Doing me again. I like Bob Ross, he seems like a nice man. Very nice man. The writing, as the series get closer to the end, isn't any better to my eyes, but starts to realise that slavish devotion to the video game doesn't work when doing a comic, which makes it marginally better. I can't be bothered to go issue by issue, so my whims will dictate what I type. The relationship between the big brain scientist guy and the cold-blooded sniper chick who lives only to hunt people down just develops out of nowhere. Oh, I fed your wolves because I can't stand them to be hungry. Oh, thank you. You are so wonderful. I love you. Oh, you're wonderful and I love you too. All someone had to do was cue some 70s porn music and they would start making out. Meryl, with her desire to take off her pants, clearly suffers some sort of psychological order which could lead to a scene like this. Damn it, girl, put your pants on, we're in the White House. Liquid Snake has daddy issues with his, I got all the recessive genes, while you got all the dominant genes solid, but I am more like him than you ever were. Daddy never loved me and he loved you! Well, he didn't try to kill both of them. Yeah, so it's understandable that he didn't like him. Mm-hmm. The doctor sit using Solid Snake as a biological carrier to wipe out Foxhound is a good idea in theory, but so random in practice that it doesn't work for me. Nuclear weapons are bad. Really bad. Not as bad as using magic, because magic always has a horrible cough, no matter how noble the intentions are, but still up there in badness. Nuclear weapons are higher up than landmines, but landmines are also bad. Really bad. Did we mention that magic's also really bad? Yeah. I am shocked that it is a high up American government official responsible for all of this. And since I can't be bothered to look at the publication dates, I'm going to assume that they're using the heavy hand of this guy, he's bad, really bad, for whomever was the Secretary of Defense at the time with the substitute. Right. When was PlayStation One Game made?
0: Um, it was made in 1999. 1999? Yeah. I, I, to be honest, I think it was just, well, not based on anyone.
1: Was Donald Rumsfeld Secretary of State in 1999? His Donald name seems vaguely familiar to me. I don't know, it's just a guess. If Donald, if you're listening, if you weren't <laughs> Secretary of State in 1999 and I've just accused you of being a um, analogue for this nefarious character in a video game, I do apologise. No offence was meant. I don't even know who Donald Rumsfeld is, I just remember the name. <laughs> I'm sure he was Secretary of State at some point. If, he, if he's just some, like... A uh, Kansas farmer. Yeah, <laughs> he, he could just be a farmer in Kansas when I saw him on the news once and the name stuck in my head because it seemed like quite a cool name. So Donald, if you are a Texas farmer, a Kansas farmer, whatever, and you're listening, I apologise, no offence was meant. Because as we well know, yeah, everybody listens to this show. Of course. Um, I think the whole concept fails for me, personally, continues Rob, as it doesn't make any sense. I mean, the Mecha Warsuit, as far as I know, doesn't fly or go underwater, so it's just a hyper version of a tank. So spending all this money to make something that has the same limitations as a tank, but armed with nuclear weapons, is rather pointless. Well, aha. Aha. The Metal
0: Gear was created because it's the missing link between infantry and tanks. It is a walking tank. Right. That is the whole point of Metal
1: Gear, to be a walking tank. But as Rob points out, America has these things called submarines and warships that can go anywhere in the world where there's war from blow the crap out of land targets with nuclear weapons. And there are also the missile silos which can target anywhere in the world, which they already have. Not to mention planes that can fly carrying nuclear weapons that can target anywhere in their range. Because okay, it was
0: originally be- created when... It was originally created by Outer Heaven hmm. at a time when only Outer he- Heaven owned... All the nuclear weapons.
1: Can you own a nuclear weapon?
0: Yeah. They, well, they, yeah, they did. Right. They held the entire world hostage, essentially.
1: Right. Was this before Metal Gear Solid?
0: This was the Metal Gear games, yeah.
1: Right.
0: Okay. And in the second one, they create Metal Gear Rec, uh, Ray. Either. Metal Gear Ray. Yeah. Which <laughs>
1: swims underwater. Why does he sound like an MTV VJ? <laughs> Metal Gear Ray.
0: It swims underwater and it is designed to take down Metal Gear Rex. Right actually fine. there's there's ones that fly and there are ones that fly (laughs) and then later on there are ones that are called gecko and stand up on two legs and run around and moo like cows I'm not making this
1: up do they believe that greed is good yes excellent There is also the maintenance necessary to maintain the Mecha Warsuit, Rob continues, as it has to be refuelled and rearmed, which will require a large high-tech support infrastructure that you must factor in. I know I'm overthinking this, but my focus went to all the things that make this story implausible after the art remarks. Sure, the big bad Mecha Warsuit is a cool thing for Solid Snake to fight, as the end boss of the series proving man defeats machine, but if it's based on a premise that doesn't make sense, then it kind of fails. It worked better in the game. Yeah. Than it did in the comic. This is what I said when we did the show. I think the comic would have been much better if it had explored the characters in the game in a completely different story from the game. Yeah, and been a tie-in novel instead of an adaptation, because I think we said that we the limitations of adapting a game to any other narrative are always problematic of everything. You can adapt a comic to a film, a film to a comic... But have no problems adapting games to films. Yeah, because by definition a game has to be a little bit simplistic for the gameplay. I'm not saying the story doesn't have to be complicated. The story can be as complicated as you want it to be. But by and large the game has to consist of you picking stuff up, you using that stuff to perform specific tasks... There may be myriad ways that you can solve one specific task depending on which way the game goes. Yeah. You can't do that in a narrative. In a narrative, character A must move to character character A, sorry, must move from point A to point B to point C over the course of the story. Whereas yeah. in a game, depending on what you do Unless it's one of those where you have to turn to certain pages. Yeah, unless it's one of them choose your own adventure books. Mm. But how does that work as a film? everyone in the cinema has these little gadgets you have to vote on. <laughs> that would just be stupid. Majority rules. Yes, but this is what I'm saying though. Adapting a game to other mediums is problematic because a game can go off in many, many different directions yeah. depending upon the gameplay. If the gameplay supports if you do something here then later on down in the, the game structure you will do something well, that's else. That's what all games are about. Exactly. You all can't non-linear. do that in a film. You you can't do that
0: in... You you couldn't do that in games, anyway. Mm. Games are very linear, and some still are, but they are
1: focusing on non-linear games now. That's why the best game adaptations have taken the idea of the game and done a completely different film around it. Yeah. If they've just tried to turn the game into a film, they've invariably failed. Yeah. Because you can't do that. And I would argue, you can't do that with anything. You can't take a book and turn it into a film... You have to make changes to the structure. I've always said, if you're adapting a book to a film, you rip that book apart and put it back together in a way that makes sense for the medium you're adapting it to. Yeah. But this is probably why I'm always disappointed in films based on books. Because books can get into the character's head more. And it's also why I think the Harry Potter films didn't always entirely succeed. They were too slavish to the books. Yeah. Which I know sounds like a really weird thing for me to say... Because I'm always the one who goes, should, says that you should go to the filmmakers and go, here's the book. You yeah. see what they did in the book? Why don't you do that? Because that worked. Okay? But there are times when Jaws is a perfect example. Jaws the movie is better than the book. I think Drive the movie is better than the book as well. Do you? Yeah. Goldfinger is better than the book. Yeah. Because they took it apart and then put it back together in a way that makes sense for a film. The stories are pretty much identical. Mm. But it's better than the book in both. It's one of the very rare instances where the films are better than the books. Rob concludes, I am curious what other games made into comics are out there to also cover that you guys might like to do. I will close with the best I can say about this series. It's alright? Later, y'all. R.L. Stubbs Jr. What other comics are made out of games? I mean, Tomb Raider is the one that comes to mind. did Sonic. Mark Miller wrote some. Yeah, but Sonic the Edge of they just made into, like, a, a humour comic, though, didn't they? They didn't adapt there. the... F- the oh, yeah, that would have yeah, yeah, been yeah, yeah. silly, wouldn't it, to adapt that game to comics? <laughs> Sonic,
0: I'm, I'm running really, really fast. So am I, watch as I loop the loop. Yeah. Ah, Dr. Eggman, I will jump at certain speeds to
1: avoid your big ball. And... Yeah, that, that would be silly. They just kind of turned that into a humour book. Yeah. And Tomb Raider, you just turn into an Indiana Jones adventure series. Yeah. Which is fine and works well and you've got to wonder why on earth they botched up those two films then yep did it Silent Hill Comics they did Did, what did they do with the Silent Hill Comics did Did they take the idea they
0: did different mini-series based on different characters Uh, they had nothing to do with the games I thought the Silent Hill film was a bit dull oh the film is a bit dull the games are better but nothing spectacular games are better the, fi- the film Ooh, makes sorry. more sense, if you think about it. Doesn't, I didn't think about it. <laughs> every game has great importance, and everything in it is of great importance. So, when they add... In ad- a two-hour narrative. But, yeah, well, the thing is, I, I can go on and on about what different things mean, but when you have, like, different meanings behind every monster, and then you just throw all the cool-looking ones into a movie, it kind of loses all meaning.
1: Yeah. But Andrea in it was in it from The Walking Dead.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And Sean Bean didn't die. And Sean Bean didn't die. Yeah. Which was shocking to me. I think that actually is a spoiler alert. That Sean Bean doesn't die. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> spoiler alert, Sean Bean lives. <laughs> Speaking of comics and video games. Yes. Civil War runs the subject editor. And it's like Kenneth Laster, who sent that in. It's like he built that Segway just for us. Exactly, he yeah. He built this segue on rock and roll you did yeah <laughs> hi Kenneth hello Mandy which is Michael and Andy which I quite like yeah only there's no like romantic thing going on no you know like when they take two people that are going out with each other and merge the names together because mm. that would be wrong yeah I really dug the Metal Gear Solid coverage says Kenneth and it was very informative and entertaining well say so thank you well,
0: thank you because I didn't do anything <laughs> for those two no, no, no. you did
1: it all it's all but, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But while I was listening about comics and video games, I couldn't stop thinking about Civil War, which I'm not sure if you were aware of, had a video game adaptation. I did not know this.
0: Oh, yeah, it was the online thing. Was it? Should we see what Kenneth says? Yeah.
1: To be honest, I never read Civil War, sensible boy. And it always sounded like a cool concept in passing to a nine-year-old, and later on, Marvel Ultimate Alliance 2 came out, and that game was awesome as heck.
2: Yeah. It's predecessors,
1: of course. I remember this. Right. And they did an online thing. Was it only an online game?
0: No, 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 they had a little spin-off online game where you
1: had to pick your teams, depending on which side you were on. Right. And then fight online. Kenneth continues, its predecessors were X-Men Legends 1 and 3 and Marvel Ultimate Alliance. The first three basically just took the characters and did whatever they wanted. But MUA2 took Civil War as the basis of the game. In that specific game, they updated the graphics and had really awesome characters. I think, from your coverage, the game was much better. (laughs) Well, it couldn't be worse. To me, the story was much more ambiguous. The prologue was the end of the Secret War, with Nick Fury being a secretive ass. And there were much more build-ups to the registration act. The player has control over the bulk of the heroes to choose which side they join, pro-reg or anti-reg. Key characters like Cap, Mr. Fantastic and Luke Cage. There wasn't much difference in plot except boss battles and costumes. The whole Civil War storyline got put to the side when Reed Richards' villain controlling nanites went cray crazy, and you had to destroy a Nega Nick Fury as everyone is happy. I haven't played through the story in a while, so I may be wrong, but the gameplay and voice acting are great and I highly recommend it. It should be pretty cheap as well as the rest of the games. The X Men ones are a pain to find them. I have one in X Men. Do you? Yeah. Which one? Nada. Oh, okay. <laughs> I know a friend bought it me, like, years ago. And you still have it? Yeah. Somewhere. As I am currently listening to the Daredevil Yellow episode, and for a birthday gift I received Superman for all seasons. By golly, is that a great book. I would be very happy if you covered that. Not subtle wink. Uh, well, J. David Weeter. Yeah. Conduit to Darkside. Yeah. Uh, covered Superman for all seasons and did a very excellent job of it. But we certainly have given thought to doing most of the late low-sale... Stuff, haven't we? Yes. Even Challenges of the Unknown, but we've never read that. Mm. So we'd have to see. But we definitely want to do Hush. That's becoming the new Wolverine, isn't it? We definitely want to do Hush. Yes. <laughs> we've mentioned that for over a year. It's so not, this, quite, it's it's not like, in the notebook yet, though. Uh, no, so it's never actually graduated to the notebook. Mm. You know, not the, the novel, obviously. Novel. Anyway, thank you, Kenneth and Rob. We'll plug somebody else's show, and I'm sure it'll be very good. And then we'll be right back with X-Men, days of future
2: past the vietnam war a conflict that changed america of those who served many came back irrevocably changed while many did not come back at all this is their story marvel comics presents the nam Join me, Tom Panneris, for In Country, a podcast that covers Marvel Comics series The NOM. Each episode, I will recap and review one issue of the series, as well as provide historical context that's important to understanding the events behind the story. Along the way, I will also take a look at the movies, music, and literature surrounding the Vietnam War. New episodes are posted every two weeks at InCountry.Podomatic. Com. You can find show notes and other media at popcultureaffidavit.com.
1: Just as Michael stuffed his face with chocolate biscuit. I timed that. I waited until that happened. (laughs) You're a horrible person. Well, while you're eating, should I do my preamble? Yeah. It's hard to conceive of now, but there was a time when the X-Men were not a success. As Daredevil was to Spider-Man, the X-Men, as originally envisioned, was simply a Fantastic 4 knockoff. Uh, this has worked before, we can make it work again kind of deal. And they went through a number of reinventions before the plug was effectively pulled. However, the book escaped cancellation, instead becoming the reprint title with X-Men issue 66, a cost-saving move that kept the characters on the newsstands without the expense of producing new material. The characters would make guest appearances in other of Marvel's titles, again to keep them in the public eye, but by and large the X-Men were considered dead. It continued this way until X-Men issue 94, when, following on from the giant-sized X-Men special, the X-Men were relaunched with an almost entirely new cast and creative team, Len Wein, Chris Claremont and Dave Cochran. Claremont took over scripting duties himself with issue 97, and with the addition of John Byrne and Terry Austin as regular artists with issue 108, the all-new, all-different X-Men was poised to take the comics world by storm. This would not happen overnight, however. Despite popular rumour, Burner said that the X-Men was hovering around the 100,000 sales mark when he was on the book, still a canceller position by the sales of the time. And it was only later, as Clermont's grip on the franchise he helped build became tighter and tighter, did the sales figures match the critical acclaim. But what critical acclaim? Issue after issue, Clermont, Byrne and Austin delivered the goods, even to non-X-Men fans. The debut of Alpha Flight, Arcade and the return of Magneto. The death of the X-Men, Return to the Savage Land and, of course, the Dark Phoenix Saga. Each story built on the other and the characters all grew and developed, creating what may be the very definition of a Marvel comic along the way. To this day, many of the stories by this creative team provide the basis for retellings, new interpretations and even movies and cartoons. Byrne took more of a hand in the plotting of the book as the collaboration continued, flat out refusing to agree to write Wolverine out of the book as had been originally planned, and contributing characters and story ideas into the mix. Kitty Pride was Burns' named after a fellow student at the Alberta College of Art, as was numerous ideas and plots, including the one we are covering tonight. But all was not well in the state of Denmark, or the Marvel offices. Byrne swiftly realised that it didn't matter what was plotted to and agreed upon. As long as Clermont was the scripter, he had final say in what made it to the page. The final straw, as Byrne tells it, was Uncanny X-Men 140, a moderately famous flash page amongst comic fans. The issue opens with Russian mutant Colossus tearing a tree trunk out of the ground. Byrne had drawn Colossus to look happy in what he was doing, rebelling in his power at this easy task. Clermont scripted it as if ripping this tree trunk up was a major undertaking. The seeds were planted for Byrne to go it alone on a different title, and after issue 143, Byrne and Austin would be gone. But not without one last hurrah. One of the best-remembered storylines in the run is Days of Future Past from Uncanny X-Men's issue 141 and 142, published with a January and February 1981 cover date. The reputation of this story has increased over the years, perhaps even more so than the Dark Phoenix saga. So it's quite a shock to go back and see that this storyline consists of two issues, with a one-page prelude in issue 140. It has been adapted into cartoons, twice, and is the basis of the upcoming prequel-sequel X-Men movie entitled, appropriately enough, Days of Future Past. There was even an episode of The Simpsons called Holidays of Future Past. Both parts were written by Chris Claremont, plotted and penciled by John Byrne, inked by Terry Austin, lettered by Tom Orzechowski, and coloured by Glynis Ween. The story actually begins with a one-page prologue in Uncanny X-Men 140. In it, The Blob, a.k.a. Fred J. Dukes, passes his audition for the new Brotherhood of Evil Mutants by escaping from the United States Federal Maximum X Security Penitentiary in Dennings, New Mexico. Should I say that with a mouthful of cheese? It's a neat little teaser for the next issue, but not pivotal. Did you even read that page?
0: Uh, no, but I knew of it. All oh, oh, right, Because we're flicking through the little, our
1: little graphic novel. And you've read all these before? Yes. Hasn't everybody read all these before? Ali, isn't this the Maybe run not of, everyone. Isn't this the run of comics everyone has to read? Isn't it a law somewhere? Everyone <laughs> must read the Clermont Burn Austin X-Men. Thou shalt. It's on the comic book Ten Commandments, yeah. I think. The comic book Bible. The comic book Bible. Thou shalt read to the Burn and ofsted X-Men. Mm. Thou shalt love it. <laughs> <laughs> no argument will be brooked. <laughs> the cover for Uncanny X-Men 141, which I have to open. And we've got the little panini pocketbook of this. So it's, it's lovely, but it doesn't stay open without leaning on it. So it's going to be quite awkward tonight. The cover for number 141 is Iconic. There's no other word for it. Penciled by John Byrne, inked by Terry Austin. it depicts an elderly Wolverine unsheathing his claws as an off-panel adversary while simultaneously pushing an elder Kitty pride behind him. We know he's elderly because he's got grey temples and bears a startling resemblance to Polly walnuts from The Sopranos. To be fair to Bernard Austin, he does actually look older as well. He has more lines on his face than usual and his demeanour seems harsher. He's wearing a brown leather jacket with a fur collar and he's carrying a sidearm in its holster. Both Kitty and Wolverine are caught in a spotlight and behind them we can see a tattered and torn poster that informs us that Cyclops, Iceman, Angel, the Beast, Nightcrawler and Banshee have been slain and Magneto, Colossus, Storm and Sprite have been apprehended. Wolverine's face on the cover has neither banner across it. It's everything a comics cover should be, posing questions that make you want to pick up the issue. Questions such as, why is Wolverine older? Who is the woman behind him? When were the team slain? Who is Wolverine unsheathing his claws at? What do you think of that cover, Michael? I like it. I was just going to say, if you don't like <laughs> this one, I am terminating our relationship. I it's a pile of crap. You know. Get out! Burn can do better. Next week, I will be holding <laughs> auditions for Michael's replacement. <laughs> No, it is. It's the word "iconic" is thrown around mm. an awful lot with regards to, to certain things, but that is an iconic. So many comics other different cover. things have ripped it off. Yeah, it all so of many them? things have paid homage to it. So many things have ripped it off. Marvel Zombies did. Mm-hmm. one. So that's just one of many. Yeah. Burns covered this many times. Mm. There's frequently there was a oh God. There was a cover of a Star Wars. Star Wars Insider. Yeah. That. Um, doing Revenge of the Sith and it was Obi Wan with his lightsaber out in a spotlight and behind him was all the Jedi slain, slain, slain. So even Star Wars has ripped this off. Yeah. At some point. So yes, it is justifiably iconic. Because it is awesome. And that is all we have I've to I have it's
0: action figure. You do, don't you? Yeah. It came with um A copy it, of this comic. Yeah. Didn't it have you still got that? Probably somewhere.
1: Why have you not got it on your shelf anymore? Because I don't know where it is.
0: Oh, I like that action figure. No, I, I have the action figure,
1: not the comic. Oh, right, not the comic. Fair enough. Well, we've got this, so we don't really need the comic, do we? Anyway, the story for this one, lovely listener, this, this synopsis that you are about to hear for Days of Future Past Part 1 took me longer to write than all of the synopsis for Daredevil Yellow. That's how dense Chris Claremont's comics are. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that as a bad thing. I think it's excellent. So strap yourself in. If you don't like synopsis, fast forward five minutes. And you won't know what we're talking about. Well, if they've read the issue, they'll know what we're talking about. In North America in 2013, there are three classes of people. H for baseline humans, allowed to breed. A for anomalous humans, humans that may carry the mutant gene, forbidden to breed. And the bottom of the pile, M for mutant forbidden to breed. One of these mutants, Catherine Pride Rasputin, is on a delivery run for the Sentinels, the robotic beings that have brought about the subjugation of the mutant people across the derelict, dying landscape that was once New York City. She has taken a diversion to meet up with Wolverine, one of the few mutants to evade capture and now leader of the Canadian Resistance. Kate falls into a trap by rogues, the local gangs, but Wolverine shows up. Doesn't go well for the rogues. Wolverine gives Kate the final component of a device called the Jammer and says she is to smuggle it into the mutant concentration camp. Wolverine also says time is of the essence. The minute the Sentinels leave North America, the rest of the world will launch a nuclear strike. Kate returns to the camp and locates her brothers in arms. All that is left of the once famous mutant team, the X-Men. Aurora Monroe, a.k.a. Star, and Peter Rasputin, a.k.a. Colossus and now Kate's husband, along with former X-Men adversary Magneto, now confined to a wheelchair. Along with Franklin Richards, son of Reed and Sue Richards of the Fantastic Four, and his girlfriend Rachel, a powerful telepath and telekinetic, these people are all that is left to stand against the tyranny of the Sentinels. Franklin uses the piece Kate retrieved off Wolverine and constructs the jammer, a device that nullifies the collars they are forced to wear that neutralizes their mutant abilities. Whilst the range isn't large, it does mean that within the room the jammer has been constructed in, Rachel can use her enhanced telepathic abilities and she and Kate sit down and concentrate. Kate feels herself losing her mind. October 31st, 1980, the present day. In the danger room at X-Mansion, the X-Men hone their abilities, including newest and youngest member, Kitty Pride. However, her training session is interrupted when Kitty passes out and the X-Men rush her to the medical bay. There appears to be no injuries, but Wolverine notices that her brainwave patterns are more active than before. Kitty wakes with a start and hugs all the X-Men, muttering something about how she didn't think Rachel could do it. The X-Men are understandably confused and become even more so when Kitty explains that is in actuality Kate Pride, Kitty from 30 years hence. She tells the befuddled X-Men that on this day, the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants will kill Senator Robert Kelly, Charles Xavier and Moira McTaggart, setting in motion a chain of events that will result in the Sentinels hunting down and killing all super-powered people, whether mutant or not. The rest of the world, more terrified of the Sentinels than of mutants, are preparing a pre-emptive strike against the former United States. Storm decides that they cannot risk Kate Woods being false, and they jet off to Washington, where Moira and Charles are attending a mutant hearing. 2013. The remaining X-Men have escaped the concentration camp, although the escape cost Magneto his life, and met up with Wolverine. The Sentinels have located them, but no longer inhibited by their collars, the X-Men fight back and score a victory, but at the loss of Franklin Richards. 1980. In the Pentagon, an undercover Raven Darkholm, a.k.a. Mystique, uses her cover as Assistant Secretary of Defence for Research and Development to spirit in the new Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. The Blob, Destiny, Avalanche and Pyro. Mystique manages to prevent infighting, this is a Marvel comic after all, long enough to announce it is time to strike. At the Senate, Robert Kelly addresses Congress on the mutant issue when the X-Men in civilian clothing arrive. Storm opens her mind to Charles Xavier, allowing him to read her memory of recent events, but before he can act, an avalanche destroys the wall of the Senate building and, as the rubble settles, there stand the all-new Brotherhood, threatening to kill Senator Kelly. Fortunately, standing in their way, the uncanny X-Men. Oh, that's the longest sit-up we've done since we did Happy Birthday Superman, so isn't it? Mm-hmm. That was probably longer than all of Civil War. Yeah, and <laughs> more happened in <didn't> it. <laughs> um, just quick roll call as they used to do in the Justice League comics. The X-Men in this configuration are Kitty Pride, now going under the name Sprite, Kurt Wagner, Nightcrawler, Logan, Wolverine, Peter Rasputin, aka Colossus, Aurora Monroe, Storm, and Warren Worthington III. The Angel. Days of Future Past, P A W S E D, was a 1967 album by the Moody Blues. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's where they got the, the title from. Interestingly, or interesting, perhaps only to me, in the last page of the previous issue, it was Days of Future, comma Past. Yeah. It seems to have lost the comma in translation to the um, to the issue itself. The comma gives it a completely different meaning, doesn't mm-hmm. it? No, that's why they dropped it. Possibly. Because if Byrne plotted this, well, Byrne drew the splash page, and the splash page, the title, is part of the artwork in true Will Eisner fashion. So if the comma has been lost in this second part, or this second mention, then Byrne dropped it, or the comma shouldn't have been in the previous issue and it was a lettering mistake. Mm. But who knows? We'll never know, it was 1980. It was, what, 33 years ago now.
0: Oh, Byrne was annoyed at Clermont, so
1: he purposefully dropped the comma in the title. Yes, because it does sound like there were some occasions like that. Yeah. Doesn't it? Uh, the splash page is an awesome example of Byrne and Austin at their best. Heavily influenced by George Perez and his Every Piece of Rubble Should Look Individual. And I, I, almost, I got flashbacks to, that, to Every Sperm is Sacred by Monty Python. Every rubble is individual. <laughs> Every sperm is sacred. Um... This is Park Avenue in New York as Dystopian Nightmare. The title, as we've mentioned, is part of the landscape. Byrne obviously paying due homage to Will Eisner. Do you like the splash page? It's a neat little splash page. You know, this is going to be one of those that you've got not a lot to say about, because it was just good.
0: I I do like the... um, Unlike your synopsis, they don't tell out what the different types of people are yet. No. So, in the first um, page... She, it's shown with her having an M on her, but. We don't know anything. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I, I think I do mention that later on. Um, there's an awful lot of this story that gives the reader credit for intelligence. Mm. It starts with no explanation of what's going on, it just plonks the reader down in the middle and goes from there. The dialogue is thrown away in places, as it would be for the characters in the story. There's very little exposition of the whys and the werefors, and the story's much better for it. Yeah. There's no explanation given either for what exactly Kate Pride's mission for the Sentinels was. She's holding a, a medical box, so the reader can infer it was to pick up medical supplies, but nothing's mentioned of it. That's just the reason she's not in the camp, isn't it? There's no reason yeah. for it. Move on. Why the Sentinels couldn't have done this hit-and-run job, I'll never know. But it could be that there is medical supplies for the people in the concentration camp, and the sentinel's like, well, we don't really care. If she gets killed, it don't really matter to us, does it? Yeah. So it could be something like that. But like you say, yeah, uh, we are just plonked down here in the middle of the story with no explanation, and we're like, oh, okay. Entertain me then.
0: you're well, one of those uh, readers who are like, what? I don't
1: get it. Did I miss yeah, it? Yeah, one you? of those people who are like, what's going on? Yeah. I need to know from page one... What is happening? But no, that's I that's liked my it this way. Page. I liked it this way. I thought this yeah. way was very effective. Uh, the scene where Kate is cornered by the rogues—if this were told today—would contain more swearing and more implication of rape. Yeah, depending upon who was writing it, wouldn't it? Mm. Bendis. Uh, speaking of Bendis, have you read Age of Ultron? Uh, well. It's this. I have, I, have, I have read. I was just yeah. Yeah, going <laughs> to say, this is two issues. Uh, if this was written today, it would be ten issues. I think I've got that note later on, because when I wrote the notes, I hadn't re- read Age of Ultron. Yeah. If you want to see how this would be handled today, lovely listener, just read Age of Ultron.
0: It's not even ten issues. It uh, is. Or, or it's spin-offs. It's been going since he rebooted it. As a, a couple of the years actual back.
1: series is eleven issues because there's an AU issue by Mark Wade at the end. That doesn't really count, though, does it? Not really, but it's one of the best issues of the <laughs> eleven. <Well, she's laughs> yeah, yeah, it's basically this. Instead of the X-Men, it's the Avengers. Yeah. Instead of the Sentinels, it's Ultron, and instead of Kitty Pryde, it's Wolverine. But it's the same basic premise as this, stretched out over ten issues. Hmm. Tell you what, if I'd paid money for that, I'd been really annoyed. But they were in the 50p bins. Uh, The shot of Wolverine's entrance on panel 8 of the second page is an exceptionally small panel. But Wolverine is given the full heroic entrance. He's bathed in a shaft of light, he himself, is shadows, his fists are clenched, one in the palm of the other. And he's rocking the grey temples and the merest hint of a smirk. Today, this would have been a two-page splash.
0: Yeah, I was just going to say, wouldn't yeah,
1: that's it? another sign at the time. Yeah, two-page splash page now. And he wouldn't have been just stood there casually. He'd have been leaping in with his claws out, wouldn't he? Mm. It would have been a dramatic pose. It wouldn't have just been just stood there. I think it works much more effectively like yeah. this. It's a very low-key introduction. Um, the lead rogue is called Alex. There is two companions droogs, perhaps. Uh, I don't know. You never seen a Clockwork Orange? No. Have you not?
0: I have not, actually, so no.
1: Go ye to a video emporium. A video emporium? <laughs> if such a thing <laughs> exists <laughs> anymore. And get yourself a Clockwork Orange. After you've done your David Lynch season, yes. you need to do Stanley Kubrick season. Alright then. Well, except maybe Eyes Wide Shut, which was a bit boring. Okay. Lots of naked women in it though, if that's your fat that floaty boat. <laughs> You're 17, it floats your boat, <laughs> doesn't it? Uh, Wolverine takes down Alex and the other droogs, apparently flee because they're forgotten about. Whoops! Did you notice that? <laughs> the, other, dis- the other guys just disappear. <laughs> they run away. We, we don't even see them run away. So, because it's like Wolverine takes down the leader and then the other two are just gone. Yeah. Never mind. Uh, Wolverine doesn't kill Alex which is uncharacteristic of Wolverine. But he reasonably realises that if he was found dead with claw marks, the Sentinels would realise that Wolverine was back in town. Which I thought was quite clever of him. Very neat. Um, Wolverine gives Kate the final component of the jammer and tells her London and the other powers have a nuclear strike aimed at North America if the Sentinels make a move. This one line is thrown away in this conversation, but Mm. says so much. It implies... All of the United States has been taken over by sentinels. But also that it was either so fast that neither the US nor its allies had any chance of preventing it. It also says that so far the sentinels have been content to overthrow the US only. Which possibly means that mutants in other countries are all alive and well. Yeah. Doesn't it? Does he not give that any thought? because we definitely know that Sunfire was a Japanese mutant, wasn't he? Yeah. And there was—I'm sure there was a Russian mutant that wasn't Colossus, but I'm—I'm I'm blanking on the name. Captain Britain's sister is a mutant, and mm. so she must be okay. Where did Megan come from in Excalibur? Was she British? Probably. So she's a mutant. It's Excalibur. Yeah. So Are she's a mutant. British? So she could be around. Well, Kitty Pride and Nightcrawler won't. Mm. Captain Britain's presumably still around, although he's not a mutant, is he? No. But he's presumably still around, yeah. as is Union Jack.
0: Well, yeah, where's Captain America when all this is going down?
1: Captain America's dead. Alright. We see his um, we see his grave later on. Actually, no, we don't see Steve Rogers' grave.
0: Oh no, he's not a mutant.
1: Uh, well, we'll come to that later on, because I saw your note earlier on, but I'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah. Um, Wolverine makes a big deal of telling Kate that the jammer, like the other components they need, is invisible to Sentinel's gam. Right? <laughs> so she should have no problem sneaking it into camp. A big deal is made out of that. Yes. As big a deal as this comic makes out of anything anyway. It's given quite a prominent line of dialogue. However, it's made quite clear by the dialogue caption, when Kate arrives back at the camp on the next page, it's heavily implied Kate is strip-searched. It actually says... After an exhaustive and intentionally humiliating security examination to ensure she is carrying no contraband, Kate is allowed to re-enter the camp that has been her home since the turn of the century. Where did she hide this component then, or do I not want to know? In a medical box.
0: She, she can disguise and BS and say it's also a medical equipment.
1: You think? Actually, that works. I'd not considered that. If she just puts it in the medical box... Mm. The Sentinels don't scan the medical box. They only search her. It seems a bit stupid that they don't yeah, search yeah. the box. But okay, I'll no-prize that. Because otherwise, it's like, where did she hide that? Yeah. <laughs> uh, perhaps we, we won't go into that on a family show. Um, Kate actually returning into the camp goes into what Michael was just saying a minute ago. She travels by bus, but it's pulled by horses. And on the bus, she's ostracised because she's a mutant. It's very hard to miss the social commentary here isn't it mm. but it, it can be read as anything it's not one particular group which is why I think the X-Men ended up being popular with comics readers they appeal to any minority group yeah it's not specifically spelled out which minority group they're um, they're aligned with later on she goes through the graveyard, yard um, the graves of fallen heroes it's a nice scene eh but I can't see the sentinels curing enough to bury the dead yeah. Surely they would have just disintegrated them. And B, I really can't see them all being buried inside the concentration camp. Maybe the people in the camp did it. Possibly. And
0: maybe Possibly. not all the bodies are there.
1: Possibly. You mean there's just a marker stone? Yeah. There's no actual body. That also makes sense. Oh,
0: uh, But the Fantastic Four are buried, though, in the graveyard. I didn't think they were mutants.
1: They're not mutants. However... It does state later on in the story that when the new president of the United States initiates the Sentinel program, he gives them a very broad order. Exterminate all people with the metagene. The Sentinels interpret that as, all right, kill everybody that's a superhero. Not just mutants. So because his orders are ambiguous, the Sentinels interpret that as kill everybody. But you're absolutely right. Captain America's not anywhere. The graves at the front are Johnny Stone, Ben Grimm, Charles Xavier, Scott Summers and Kurt Wagner. The back we see Hank McCoy, Peter Parker, Warrington, Warren Worthington, Bobby Drake, Reed Richards, Lorna Dane, Susan Richards. And we can't make out the other names. So no mention is made of Captain America. Mm. It's logical to assume they took him out first. Probably. Because like, if the Sentinels have got any brains, they'll take the tacticians out first. Yeah. But, yeah, no mention is made of cap in all of this. When we're introduced to the remaining X-Men, Colossus has the standard Marvel Grey Temple, to imply he's a bit older. Pointedly, the telepath telekinetic Rachel is not given a last name. Mm. The reader is supposed to infer she's the daughter of Scott Summers and Jean Grey. Yeah. But, if Dark Phoenix happened as it happened, Jean died before she gave birth to anybody. Bird did mention this in a Q&A on his forum, that Days of Future Past. past sorry, was plotted before. before Dark Phoenix happened, and in the original Dark Phoenix story, Jean Grey didn't die. Yeah, she was stripped of her Phoenix powers, and it was only later on Jim Shooter decided that no, this isn't this isn't a good enough ending. Jean Grey has to die. Mm. The killing of Jean Grey ultimately meant the knock-on effect of this storyline meant that she couldn't be the daughter of Scott and Jean. So, they got around this by not mentioning her surname. Yeah. Why they didn't just change her colour as well is something that I didn't understand.
0: Or maybe this was just uh, Marvel saying that Jean will be back. Possibly. Because she dies and comes back. But at this six point, they, like, had, okay. they
1: had no plan to bring her back. Mm. So, that was, Burnout said that was kind of an error that he wishes he'd fixed for reasons that would ultimately we'll go up to at the end of the story. Yeah. We'll mention that later.
0: Um, I I do quite like how when they're all introduced, Magneto is now in a wheelchair.
1: I thought that was a nice touch. That Magneto is now the Professor Xavier of the group, which would lead to Clermont rehabilitating him later on. So that ties into what Clermont ultimately ended up doing with him. Kate says the Sentinels murdered her babies, which is chilling, although one wonders why the Sentinels keep mutants around at all. If their orders were to exterminate everyone with the metagene... Yeah. Why are these people still alive? What do they keep them for? Slavery? Is that what they're using them for?
0: Okay. Cause Slave labor.
1: Yeah. Well, possibly. That's actually la- actually as robots, they may need humans to do certain tasks. Yeah. I, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, that's a good no price. The jammer prevents the collars the mutants are forced to wear to inhibit their powers from working, which lets Rachel quantum leap Kate's mind into that of her younger self, which is a pretty neat way to time travel. To be honest, as there's no actual time travel involved. So there's none of the usual mechanisms of building the time machine. None of that's in place. Rachel's mutant powers allow her mind link Kate's memories and then focus her current intelligence back into her younger body, essentially overwriting her younger self. If you think about it that way, it's actually very dangerous. Kate's mind could override Kitty's, which would be a little awkward. Yeah. A 30, 40-odd-year-old woman in a 13-year-old body... That'd be a bit, a bit strange. Uh, of course, this is all my supposition of how this works. None of this is mentioned in the story. Hmm. Which is as it should be. The story shouldn't be getting bogged down with how this techno-babble time travel stuff works. Because the minute it does that, you're like, check it out, aren't you? Yeah. You're bored of the story. At that
0: I find it funny at how, um, what if it doesn't work? And Because like, of the way they timed it, she's going to the very same day they have to change. Yes, so there's no preparation. What if the X Men don't believe her?
1: I, well, the getting her to believe her thing—they presumably knew Professor X could read her mind. See I, I like that they did believe her.
0: Those in a big team-up fight first.
1: Yeah, they did actually just accept it and go, "All right, we'll give you benefit of the doubt I for now." Can shoot claws out of my hands? if yeah, I can. I can. I and... can yeah, it's perfectly acceptable what you're saying to me, but I did like that Storm was a bit dubious of it all. Yeah. But I uh, no, I bought into that. I didn't mind that at all. Um. The present day, October 31st, 1980, mentions that the recent presidential election was one of the closest and hardest fought in history. So I looked this up. Did you? Because Wikipedia is your friend. And everything on there is true. Everything on there is true. Yep. Obviously. Um, But this general election, presidential election, whatever it's called, was between Democrat Jimmy Carter, Republican Ronald Reagan, and Independent John B. Anderson, and Reagan won by a landslide, rather than being closely contested. Mm. I suspect this was written before the actual election. Probably. So maybe they thought it was going to be closely contested, and ultimately it ended up not being... Mm. The actor? Yes. <laughs> Who's his first lady? <laughs> no, maybe what is it? Who's his secretary of state? Jimmy Stewart? Yeah. That's quite funny. Uh, the X-Men are in the danger room. Got to admit, danger room never made a lot of sense to me. I get a training exercise run by computer, so it's always random. That makes sense. Professor X saying, let's kill my students." Yeah, a room that can actually kill you seems a little bit reckless to me. It's the same problem as the holodeck in Star Trek. Mm. A few malfunctions that actually kill someone, and it'd be mothballed, wouldn't it? Surely Professor X is a school.
0: Unless it's Secret War. Professor X reading people's minds. And then
1: mind-wiping them and, uh, for no readily light reason. reading or. the
0: minds, finding what can kill them. Yeah. And then telling them it's
1: just a training exercise. <laughs> no people really died. Yes. These aren't the droids you're looking for. No X-Men harm in the <laughs> training of the students. You want to go home and rethink your life. Uh, the introduction of the introduction... The introduction of the X-Men is handled in a full page splash, in which Byrne uses one of his favourite artistic tricks, that being the characters are all stood on the bottom of the panel, so the panel border represents the floor, which is a great little visual trick that I always liked. Mm. He uses it a lot in the second part as well. Did you notice? Uh, I didn't know. Okay. I love that. They're actually stood on the panel border. I, yeah. just, I just think it's a neat little visual. Kitty being too rattled to phase when she walks in on them, training in the danger room seemed a little bit spurious to me Mm. I'd have thought the X-Men being too rattled to use their powers would be like us forgetting how to breathe yeah that seemed a bit contrived
0: I read it at first um, when I was reading this I I took it more as a that was when she jumped into her own body and that's why she was a bit jumper right and later
1: on it clearly points out that she jumps into her own body at this point she's still Kitty she's got Kate So, yeah, okay. Um, Of the original X-Men, only the Angel and Charles Xavier are still members of the team. Cyclops having recently taken a leave of absence after the death of Jean Grey. Storm is the leader. This doesn't sit well with Wolverine, who seems a bit of a sexist in this story, doesn't he? Wolverine's not a nice guy. Well, no he isn't, which is fine. Yeah. But... So maybe being sexist is is part of his character comes under not being a nice guy comes under not being a nice guy maybe it's nothing to do with their gender maybe he doesn't like being given orders no matter what gender they are Uh, again without appearing exposition laden Nightcrawler explains that Professor X is in Washington for the Senate mutant hearings Clermont gets a lot of stick for his use of stock phrases no quarter ass non given the best there is at what he does blah blah but the dialogue in this issue is on point and forward moving I never had any problem with this at all. And I read this twice before I even did the notes because I enjoyed it so much. Absolutely. And also to make sure I got the synopsis right. Yeah, (laughs) Um, There's a nice little plot point that Kitty is still rather nervy around Nightcrawler, a nice subplot paid off handsomely in a couple of pages' time because that's how they realise something's a little bit amiss. She gives Nightcrawler a big old hug. ...when she's still a bit unsure of him... ...at this point in X-Men continuity. Uh, Kitty takes to the danger room alone... ...in a series of tests that all seem rather useless... ...for somebody who can phase through things. The X-Men cracking up that all of Professor X's... ...well-laid plans are for naught is a nice moment... ...but there doesn't really seem to be anything... ...in the danger room here... ...that can challenge Kitty, does there? There's a bunch of pillows thrown at her... ...that just phase through her. Dr Octopus's tentacles attack her... Yeah. that just phase through her. They open a trap door, but she can walk on her. I,
0: I thought that was a little bit of a stretch.
1: I obviously... Yeah, I've got to admit, the fact that Kate, Kitty can manipulate molecules on such a level that she can walk on her, I did always think was a bit of a stretch. I can buy the phasing. I can buy the computer. Yeah, and all of that, but yeah. It's like, how far does your suspension of disbelief go, isn't it? Yeah. The fact that she can walk on her, believe it or not, I thought was a bit... Yeah.
0: But so why don't she just destroy all the sentinels then if she can...
1: She's got the inhibitor collar on.
0: But if she's just phased through them before she put they put the collar on her.
1: Maybe she did. You don't know that she didn't. But it's entirely possible she just got overwhelmed and knocked unconscious. I, put I the inhibitor knocked cholera.
0: unconscious when she can phase through things. I don't know. <laughs> I
1: wasn't the This whole story means nothing when she could just phase through things. Maybe they caught her on her words. Maybe they sneaked up on her. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> a little big on me um, she's still only 14 perhaps this was Charles going kind on her maybe he didn't mean all of these stuff to cause her any problems maybe he was boosting her confidence
0: but when she's older in the sentinels attack
1: oh no no I meant the danger yeah yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know it's not explained I mean maybe he sneaked up on her maybe they got
0: but in this, like Xavier was kind of, oh, she's 14, she'll be good enough.
1: I'll kill her this time. Yeah, I won't <laughs> kill her this time, is what he was thinking. Maybe next time. Yeah. <laughs> um, Kitty collapsing is handled extremely well. None of the X-Men on duty seem to have any medical experience, but it makes sense they would all be trained in handling the rudiments of the medical lab. I like that it was Wolverine who thought to check the brain patterns and that he noticed they were the same but different. Yeah, I always like when they point out that Wolverine has a brain. Mm. The same way I always like when they point out that the thing isn't thick. Just because he's a big lumbering monster who thinks with his fists most of the time. I always love it when they underestimate his intelligence. Because remember, Ben Grimm was a fighter pilot. Yeah, You don't get to be a fighter pilot by being a dunderhead. And the uh, same with Wolverine. Wolverine was a secret agent. There has to be some level of intelligence involved though. So when they mistake Wolverine for just a brawler... I like, I like that thought. So he wasn't. drinks all of his intelligence away. Yeah, well, well, in the films, doesn't alcohol not have any effect on him? Definitely Whereas in the it comics, is. it gets him drunk. Yeah. But, you know, whatever. Uh, I adored the scene where Kitty wakes up. Her body language and speech patterns are subtly different, so kudos to the writers and the artists. And Storm's wonderful reaction of, um... Are oh, you indeed? When, um, It's very deadpan. When she says, I'm from the future! Mm. Are oh, you indeed. Well, just that right mix of patronising and incredulous. Yeah. Which I thought was quite well handled. I would have been much better, I mean, this was before Back to the Future, but she should have started calling her Future Girl. <laughs> Who's president in 1984! Yeah, because even in the Marvel Universe, some things must be hard to swallow. Re- really? Um... I don't know, I was thinking about... Yeah, that does seem stretching it a bit, even for the X-Men. Well, but, yeah, it's not It's not like in the DC universe, where it really bugs me, when right. somebody will say, I don't believe in vampires. You live in a universe with flying aliens from Krypton, and power rings, and men who can break into the speed force. Vampires are just too too much for you. Well, no, that's a Marvel universe thing. Is that a Marvel universe thing? Vamp- yes,
0: vampires, yeah. All right. But isn't there... Um... An Avengers bad guy who travels through time. Kang. Kang, yeah. Mm. So Kang can do it, but Kitty can't.
1: Yeah, but see, this isn't Kang has appeared and said, I am from the future. (laughs) Kitty Prads just woke up. And for all intents and purposes, she's still 13 years of age. Yeah. So uh, Aurora's like, okay, did you bang your head? Do you need some ice cream? (laughs) The future history as explained by Kate, is very interesting. Remember that this predates the Terminator by a good three years, so someone sent through time to affect the course of future history is still novel and largely unexplored. Harlan Ellison kind of explored a similar idea in his short story Soldier of Tomorrow, but in that case the soldier of the title was sent back in error rather than in a deliberate attempt to alter the course of future events. The president that is elected in 1984 in the Alterniverse, so in the Marvel Universe, when Reagan got a second term, it should have been clear the events of the story were successful. But however, this still creates the Sentinels after a Congress claim his Mutant Control Act is unconstitutional. These machines interpret their orders to eliminate the mutant menace as take over the country and turn on the human race. This is remarkably similar to the central idea of the Terminator, albeit without the twist that that story has, and Days of Future Past bears far more similarity to Terminator than Ellison's soldier episode of Outer Limits that Cameron was accused of ripping off. There are enough differences between the two, however, that it just may not have been worth Marvel's time to sue, like Ellison did. He's very litigious, though, Harlan Ellison, isn't he? He thinks everybody ever, everybody who's ever written anything has ripped him off. So he's
0: the Alan Moore of the... uh... Pretty much,
1: of the literary world, (laughs) yeah. yeah. Uh, Of course, the Terminator also has elements from the 1952 Philip K. Dick story, The Skull, Yul Brynner's android killer from Westworld, and DC Comics Presents issue 61, The Once and Future War, by Len Wein and George Perez, and Days of Future Past has, by Byrne's own admission, a subconscious nod to the Doctor Who story, Day of the Daleks. Mm. There's no such thing as an original idea, is what I'm saying. (laughs) So, you know, they may not have ripped you off. It may just be coincidence. Um... The future timeline continues where it's mentioned that the Mutant Control Act was finally passed in 1988, presumably the alternate future president's second term. And by the turn of the century, North America was under the complete control of the Sentinels, with the superhero population wiped out. What the rest of the world was doing in between 1988 and 1999 is anybody's guess. Possibly mutants and superfolks from other countries joined the fight and were killed, maybe some are preparing for if the Sentinels attack the rest of the world. In real terms, I suspect the writers just didn't want to deal with any of that. Mm. I think they just were like, we don't want to mention it. Let's move on. Probably. Which is fair enough. They did all this in two issues. Fair play to them.
0: Mm.
1: Uh, back in 2013, Magneto is killed off panel. And Franklin Richards is fried in one quick burst of action. One minute is the next he's got. Yep. It's quite... Oh. So okay. much for
0: those superpowers of his. Yeah,
1: well, Franklin Franklin doesn't really have superpowers in this story, in his does he? In alternate future. Yeah, I mean, he would still be a mutant, because he's the child of Reed and Sue, but we're never given any clear definition of what his powers are. I do like that he's got Reed Richards, her, and he's blonde. Yeah. I thought that was a nice touch. So, essentially,
0: he's been deemed as a mutant, but he could just be a normal person who's the son of no,
1: he was. he was already deemed a mutant in the Fantastic Four, yeah. because he's a child of Reed and Sue, so he has some kind of latent... Superpower. Whether it ever develops into anything, he's still a mutant. Yeah. So that's probably why they've got him captured. No mention of um, his sister, though, in this particular future. Maybe she was killed. Maybe she's already dead. Yeah. Uh, fastball special. Always nice to see a fastball special. Uh, for some reason, Sentinel is misspelled on this page.
0: I don't know. I, just I, thought I thought
1: it was weird. Yeah, it's spelt um, it's spelt Sentinel. On the same panel with the fastball specialist. Which I thought was a bit strange. Oh no, not so strange. The Potomac River is incorrectly spelled Potomic On the next page. Fair enough. Uh, Colossus also says, as Nightcrawler used to say, "Up, up and away," which is in order to the last son of Krypton, obviously. The Brotherhood of Evil Mutants in this incarnation are Mystique, shapeshifter; Destiny, a blind precog who can see the future; Avalanche, who can create avalanches; (laughs) Pyro, who can control flame, and the Blob, who no man can move if he doesn't want to. This being a Marvel book, they fight amongst themselves for no real reason. I still find it hilarious that they call the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants
0: (laughs) 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 specifying.
1: Yeah, they dropped that in the film, didn't they? They Just the Brotherhood of Mutants. Oh, dear me. But well, we're the Brotherhood of Mutants, so oh, I guess
0: we'll have to be the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants then. Eh?
1: <laughs> it's a bit on the nose, don't you think?
0: A bloody Charlie's stealing my name again.
1: <laughs> they could have called themselves the National Front of Mutants. That would have worked, wouldn't it? it gets the same point to crap. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, just we the bad guys. Yes. Yeah, we're the bad guys. (laughs) Let's be bad guys. Yes. Uh, The Angel is an out-mutant at this point, so when the X-Men arrive at the hearings, the camera crew asks Lois to go and get an interview. Lois? Lois Lane. Mm. I read that as well. Senator Kelly argues that the last Neanderthal was wiped out by the first Cro-Magnon man and compares this to mutants wiping out mankind, which conveniently ignores at least 15,000 years of European history where the two coexisted. Yeah. But when are bigots ever allowed facts to get in the way?
0: It's kind of a double standard, though, isn't it? Oh, yeah, the, this, this Cro-Magnon guy killed the last Neanderthal, and they've evolved into us. But this new species, oh, crap, they're going to kill us, mate. We can't let them. Can't let them evolve. I, you know, that's an excellent
1: point. i never, <laughs> never... Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Because his, in his analogy, we are Neanderthal. Yeah. So, by the definition of evolution, maybe it is our time to be wiped out. Now, now I'm not saying
0: I want to be killed by the next stage of evolution, but, but <laughs> don't argue it. That's
1: actually a very good point. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Very good point, that. Um, Nightcrawler seems to appear from nowhere in the last page. Did you notice that? Because he, he doesn't walk in with them because they're all inhuman guys. Yeah. Unless Nightcrawler's got that Funny helmet that Professor X made him to disguise himself as human, hmm. then he doesn't come in with him because there's Angel and there's Wolverine. So, But then Nightcrawler just shows up. Do you think he just bammed just, just poofed in, yeah. Yeah, when uh, the wall fell in. Yeah, alright, I'll buy that. Uh, this was an absolute blinder of a comic and a prime example of the art form at its finest doing what only comics can do. It takes a long-running series and turns it on its head for the purposes of telling a story that builds out of past events as well as pointing the way forward. The art is gorgeous, the story involving and complex without being complicated, and it's all handled exceptionally well in a small amount of page time. There's no way in hell this would all happen in one issue nowadays and maybe that's for good or ill but it's first and foremost a comic story this is not really something that tv could have done at the time although a long-running tv show could possibly pull it off now but in film this wouldn't work in the same way Mm. and it's going to be really interesting to see how brian singer pulls this off absolutely fantastic comic book unless it's like continuum in what way well, isn't that what it is? Oh, yeah, the premise of continuum is basically there's a future past, yes, so they could do it as a TV.: A show. bunch of terrorists from 65 years in the future have come back in time to now, uh, and Kira Cameron has followed them by accident. Kira Cameron Yeah, no, no James Cameron. James Cameron invented time travel. Did you know that? Did it? I would have called her Kira Ellison. <laughs> but that's just me because <laughs> well, do you know what bugged me? Brian Singer tweeted that he took the script to Days of Future Past to James Cameron to make sure that the time travel worked. And James and not, Cameron's now an expert on time travel, is he? What, and not the people actually wrote Days of Future and Past? Not the people who wrote Days of Future Past, yeah. Or again, Harlan Ellison. Or Bob Gale, who did a pretty good job with time travel in the Back to the Future films. Or the guys. Or David Peoples, who wrote 12 Monkeys.
0: Yeah. Oh, well how can you have problems writing a time travel story? It's time travel.
1: You can basically do what you want. Yeah,
0: yeah but I think was more it a wrong, case back of in
1: time. Well, that's that <laughs> what happens in Age of Ultron. Yeah. Do you want me to ruin it for you? Uh, go on. Uh, Wolverine and Sue go back in time to kill Hank Pym before he can create Ultron. Right. Which they do. And that just messes things up even worse. So they then go back in time again from to stop Mark them Pym. from killing Hank Pym. Okay. <laughs> And there's, there's a part of you at some point, isn't this just an episode of Family Guy <laughs> at this point, where they've gone back in time to stop Brian from digging the ball yeah. up, but they messed it up, so they go back in time to stop themselves from stopping Brian from digging the ball up, and you're like, yeah, Brian, you've so been So yeah, there's loads <laughs> of different
0: Wolverines. Yeah, there's <laughs> loads
1: of different Wolverines. What did you think of it? I liked it. Because I'm always interested in what you think of old comics. I
0: don't, I, well, this one's been one you made me read from a young age. Because it's awesome. Yeah. So you bought my uh, me my own little pocketbooks? Yeah. Uh, just to make me read the Clermont Burn run?
1: Yes. Well, I, 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 I honestly think that uh, when you're introducing your children to read, the Clermont Burns <laughs> stuff <laughs> is up there with the classics. <laughs> Bro Rabbit, Harry Potter, <laughs> Old Yeller, Clermont Burns <laughs> X Men. It's so dense, you have to learn to read. Yeah, you have to (laughs) learn to read. It's absolutely fantastic. Um, Uncanny men 142, Mind Out of Time, has another iconic cover. This issue, Everybody Dies, runs the copy as a sentinel holds the limp and dead body of Storm in one hand, whilst frying Wolverine with the other. This one is credited only to Terry Austin. Yeah. John Byrne had nothing to do with it. Which, when you know that, you can't tell Mm. if you look at it carefully there is very subtle differences between Burn and Austin and just Austin. 1980, the Brotherhood prepare to strike and Senator Kelly orders them taken down. Beat cops prove no match and Avalanche turns the floor into water causing it to shook the X-Men off. Off balance, Nightcrawler recovers and attacks Avalanche, but Destiny's precognitive abilities lead to Nightcrawler's defeat. Pyro checks to see if Colossus can melt, but Wolverine unsheathes his claws and goes for the kill. Storm prevents Bloodshed with a mini-tornado and puts out the fire around Colossus, but the X-Men fail to notice Xavier and Moira McTaggart being escorted away by a disguised Mystique. Mystique fails to kill Charles while she has the chance, and Destiny tells Mystique that there is a force at work in the time stream preventing her from seeing the future. 2013. Wolverine, Storm, Colossus and the mysterious Rachel hindered by having to carry Kate's unconscious form, take the fight to the source and attack the Sentinel's base of operations, the Baxter Building. 1980. The fight spills outside and the army arrive from Fort Mayers. Deciding no mutant is a good mutant, they open fire and take out Colossus whilst Pyro whips up a flame hand from the army flamethrowers and almost kills the soldiers. Angel prevents this, but Pyro grabs a hold of Wolverine and nearly burns him alive until Storm interferes. She orders Wolverine not to kill, and begrudgingly, he and a recovered Colossus use a girder to lift the blob from the floor and punch him out. Storm uses water to destroy Pyro, and now... Nightcrawler appears and attacks Nightcrawler, but the real one stands victorious before seeing Mystique's appearance for the first time and spotting the family resemblance. Nightcrawler's questions go unanswered, though, as the X-Men must flee before they, too, are arrested. Mystique manages to get away, and the X-Men note that neither Destiny nor Kate are anywhere to be seen. 2013. The three remaining X-Men prepare to take the Baxter Building, but their arrival has been carefully monitored. Wolverine is fried by a sentinel and Storm skewered in a secondary attack. Colossus is likewise murdered easily. Rachel feels all this in her mind and realises that it all now depends on the time-travelling Kate Pride. 1980, Kate tracks Destiny to send her to Kelly's chambers where she proposes to kill him. At the last minute, Kate phases through Destiny, throwing her aim off and her crossbow misses its mark. Kate feels herself returning to her own time and, face to face with her past, kisses Kitty as Kitty wakes up unaware of where she is. Kitty has no memories of anything since passing out in the danger room and, as the X-Men depart for New York, Angel tells Professor X if that means they succeeded. Only time, says Professor X, will tell. Some months later, the President takes a meeting with Senator Kelly and Sebastian Shaw, whom, unbeknownst to either men, is a mutant. Whilst the President acknowledges that Kelly's report may be unconstitutional and dangerous, he is tasking Henry Peter Geirich with Project Wide Awake, the creation of a new breed of sentinel. Uh, the opening recap has Burn once again pulled a trick where the characters stood on the panel border on page two mm-hmm. and three. Did you notice that? Uh, both here and in the opening and in the last issue, it stated that Avalanche's touch disintegrates inanimate objects, yet when he compels the floor that the X-Men are standing upon to move and shake, he's not touching it. No. you think that's a cock-up between dialogue and art, or just a cock-up in his power usage?
0: Maybe his power usage. You think?
1: Because if he can do that, then he's not really Avalanche, is he? I guess. But he could do with a better code name, is my thinking. <laughs> Destiny is the troublesome character in this part of the story. Yeah. In that she's almost too powerful. Whilst I buy that the presence of Kate Pride is an element she couldn't have foreseen, and even knowing something is wrong, she doesn't know what, she's still able to predict exactly where Nightcrawler will appear when he's attacking Avalanche. She didn't seem to foresee the X-Men's appearance, though. Or could she foresee Kate Pryor coming up behind her and throwing her aim on No, because they do set up that Kate's presence is what's causing this blip. So I got from that that Kitty slash Kate was somehow out of the time stream or unable to be predicted what she would do. Because although it's Kitty's 13-year-old body... Yeah. There's a thirty, forty odd year old mind occupying that body, and therefore that is unpredictable. But the problem is, she didn't know the X Men would show up, but she knew where Kurt would be. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, okay, she can foresee certain things, but not others. How does that work then, Ted? <laughs> it's a very, very strange thing. Um, Pyro wonders if Colossus can melt, which is interesting. What exactly is Colossus made of? Yeah, I don't. I, I don't think I, I ever knew that. And if Kate's mind is in Kitty's body. Where did Kitty's mind go? Maybe they both share it. So Kitty is unconscious within her own body, and Kate is the dominant personality. Yeah, like um, maybe she put
0: her in a coma for just for the time she was.
1: Yeah, in her. All right, yeah, fair enough. Uh, Storm prevents Wolverine from carving up Pyro, which makes sense in a Senate subcommittee hearing here about the threat of mutants. Yeah. That, that, that was a leadership decision I actually agreed with wholeheartedly. We're well, all, all
0: having a big fight here, so... Yeah, but
1: in this case, the X-Men are preventing Senator Kelly from being killed. Yeah. So it's not like the X-Men had any choice here. They couldn't just say, let's all hold hands and sing Kumbaya, could they? The Brotherhood were attacking and they were going to kill him. Yeah. So the X-Men are basically self-defence here. Granted, they completely trash the uh, the Senate Subcommittee hearing, but that's not their fault. It's Avalanche. Yes, it's all Avalanche's fault. Uh, in 2013, the X-Men attack the Baxter building. couple of notes about this sequence. There's a line of dialogue where Colossus asks Rachel what's taking Kate so long, and La- Rachel replies... We may not notice any difference. Kate may create an alternate timeline which flies in the face of what Byrne actually plotted. And I found this quote from the man himself. There were two things I wanted to do when I plotted what became Days of Future Past. First and foremost, of course, I wanted to do a kick-ass Sentinel story. But there was something else almost equally important. I wanted the X-Men to have a clear win. A story in which, when the dust settled, there was no doubt they had accomplished what they set out to do. They had won a definitive victory. The story I came up with seemed pretty bulletproof. Mark Gruenwald, Captain Omniverse himself, insisted that what would happen was actually the creation of an alternate timeline... But I pointed out to him that Kate having been sent back through her own mind stream meant there was no way that could happen. The link between Kate and Kitty was continuous, contiguous and uncorruptible. When the past, Kate's past was changed, it would be changed and the future from which Kate sprang would simply vanish. That's what I plotted, that's what I drew, that's what I sent in. But when Chris scripted it, he included what immediately became known around the office as the lesbian incest scene, where Kate leaves Kitty's body and impulsively gives herself a kiss. In other words, Kate survives the alteration of the timeline. I nearly exploded. I did not see this until it was published and after this I insisted on script approval and i had never been so furious in my life. Roger Stern had to talk me out of quitting the book right then and there. He was no longer editor but he was my friend and could see through my anger to what was best for me and he hoped the book. But the damage was done both to my storyline and my attitude towards the book and the characters. That was when I started to realise that in the end it didn't matter who I thought the X-Men were or how I thought they should think and act because it was what Chris script that was seeing print and that was what the fans were accepting as fact. I did not know at the time but this was very much the same scenario that ultimately drove the wedge between Stan and Jack and Stan and Steve. So the whole adventure did create an alternate timeline which Chris and Marvel have mined ad nauseum ever since and the X-Men lost their clean win again. Which, you know, I suppose I can see his point. Mm. Doesn't ruin the story for me. I don't let what happened later by other people or in this case just by Chris Claremont ruin this story
0: because
1: mm. you know that way it kind of leaves madness it's like letting Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull ruin Razor the Lost Ark oh, I just I just I just don't consider it to be a real film do you not no. as far as you're concerned it, Crystal Skull doesn't exist it ended which is a shame because the first 30 minutes are really good
0: it, well it's a, it's a short film
1: then alright it's a short story this is what Indy got up to in the 50s yeah But as soon as Shia LaBeouf shows up, it's kind of like, grinds (laughs) to a halt, doesn't it? Bumblebee jumps out. (laughs) (laughs) Aliens. Oh God, don't get me started on the Transformers movies. They're like the Pirates of the Caribbean films, aren't they? Vacuous, noisy, (laughs) cliched, tentpole adventures with no heart or soul whatsoever. It's Hollywood. I would rather watch Kingdom of the Crystal Skull than (laughs) any Transformers or Pirates of the Caribbean movie. Because at least it feels like there is a little bit of heart and soul in there. <laughs> As opposed to the Pirates and the Transformers movies. Which is a shame, because Transformers is such a good idea. Transformers of the Caribbean. Yes, squandered by Michael Bay. Yeah. Anyway, we're not talking about that. Um, somewhere along the line, Wolverine manages to steal one of the FF belt buckles. Which I thought was a lovely little touch, mm. Explaining how he gets into the Baxter building. And back in 1980, Colossus' hand... He's caught in the blob stomach, yeah, and <laughs> just see him go, get off. <laughs> just it strikes I like me as quite amusing. The panel
0: where they knock this sentinel down, it falls against the wall.
1: Yes, it just slumps against the wall. Back in 2013, again, the panel where Colossus has his hand stuck in the blob's belly, they stood on the panel border.
0: Yeah. He uses that a lot. Mm. I did like, in general, how the Sentinel's base of operations
1: was the uh, Baxter Building. Well, that kind of makes sense. If you're going to be somewhere in New York, you're going to be somewhere that has lots of high-tech equipment in it. Mm. The Baxter Building, or Avengers Mansion. But the Baxter Building's a nice tall skyscraper that you can look over all of New York. Yeah. So it works as a monitor tower as well, and... Anakin! I have the high ground! So it works in both ways. Mm.
0: What if the Sentinels realise they have uh, access to the Phantom Zone? Or the negative zone. The negative
1: zone, not yes. the phantom zone. You will bow down before me, jor Wait a minute, this isn't the phantom zone!
0: <laughs> why, why don't they just put all the, all, all the mutants in the negative zone?
1: Maybe the Sentinels don't know about the negative zone. Maybe you've hit exactly upon it, though. Okay. Maybe if they did know about the negative zone, they'd have killed Annihilus and Blaster and all the other denizens of the negative zone. Yeah. So... I'm leaning towards they don't know the negative zones there because Reed isn't stupid enough to just leave it open all the time. One would hope. Fair enough. (laughs) Um, There are two reporters name checked here Joni and Rick. Uh, I have no idea if these are real people or an in joke.
0: Rick Joni. Rick Jones. Possibly. Rick Jones confirmed from Newton.
1: Joni loves Ricky. (laughs)
0: Yeah.
1: It's possible. Um, There are two very interesting scenes with Wolverine in this issue. Mm. In the fight with the Brotherhood, we see the first one. Pyro's really rather cool flame fist grabs a hold of Wolverine and Storm is worried that if she doesn't act in seconds, even Wolverine's fast-acting healing factor won't be able to recover from it. Place that in the back of your mind for now. We'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, The scene where we have two Nightcrawlers fighting each other is like two Captain Kirk's. And is rather questionable. Wolverine can't tell them apart due to still being woozy from the burns. Yeah. How do burns on his back and chest affect his sense of smell?
0: No not That didn't work, did it? I like how after Storm speaks to him, um, he just leaves him alone. And whenever he talks to one of them, they both respond.
1: Yes, I did like that both of them buried themselves in the part. Yeah. So there really was no telling the difference between them. I thought it was quite good. Um, although when Storm gives Wolverine that order that you just mentioned, he nearly guts her. Mm. Which goes into there's a funny thing Bird has said on his website. His conception of Wolverine was he is her trigger, and he, he's always had this scene he wanted to do yeah. where Kitty walks into the breakfast nook one morning and Wolverine's eating breakfast, and she says, How are you today, Wolverine? and he guts her because he's just had a terrible night and he's, Shut up! I'm eating my cornflakes. That never happened, obviously. I <laughs> can't but see why. I'd, yeah, gee, yeah, I wonder why that never <laughs> happened. Kit Wolverine gutting a 13-year-old on panel. Yes. Matt Miller would totally write that nowadays. Oh, probably. So let's not mention it. A whole it
0: six-issue miniseries. In the
1: hope that he, he never gets that idea. will probably
0: look. have the name. I know which 13-year-old girl you gutted last <laughs>
1: <summer>. <laughs> Played by Jennifer Love Hewitt. Uh, how Wolverine Colossus beat the blob His hysterical. Yeah, I loved this um, exactly where Colossus got a large girder from is probably a question better not asked but Colossus uses Wolverine as the fulcrum places the girder on Wolverine's back and underneath the blob's legs in between his legs and smacks the other end like a seesaw the blob hurtles through the air and then with nothing to stand on he falls to the earth Colossus punches him in mid-air at Avalanche who he crushes it was incredibly funny.
0: There is a thing, what, what happened? Did Colossus just run out to a nearby construction Yeah, gear. that was just happened to be nearby. He arrived <laughs> the guys a couple of, you know, for, for the girder. Yeah, because he does just appear with a girder. And then he comes in, he's like, Wolverine, get
1: on your knees. Maybe Washington DC just has girders lying around everywhere. So in the,
0: in the middle of this fight, Wolverine just gets down on his hands and knees yeah. and lets Colossus oh, put a girder Colossus on
1: Yeah, but even worse than that, he places it between the blob's <laughs> legs, yeah. which makes the scene inadvertently even funnier because that means that Colossus smacked him in the junk yeah. <laughs> so I, I don't care how immovable he is that would have hurt oh, yeah. dude even if he didn't move that's still a lot of <laughs> he's now got three Adam's apples the blob <laughs> has <laughs> but I love the next panel where he's coming down to land and he punches him in midair yeah. and then he crushes avalanche <laughs> come on that was funny uh, funny funny stuff very very good Back in 2013, Colossus has Wolverine at the Sentinel in fan favourite Fastball Special. The Sentinels not only knew they were coming, but let them get in to kill them easier. Mm. Talk about bleak. <laughs> you know, so basically their entire quest was hopeless from the beginning. Yeah. Wasn't it? The Sentinels knew that they were coming. Um, we do, however, come back to what I mentioned earlier. Wolverine is fried in mid air by the sentinel in one panel. His flesh burned off his body, leaving only his adamantium skeleton to fall to the floor. It's really hard to imagine the Wolverine of today, who has survived being ripped in half, thinking that either of these attacks would be more than a scratch. He'd be yeah. like the Black Knight in Monty Python, wouldn't he? <laughs> I mean, a
0: scratch! <laughs> Come back,
1: coward! <laughs> He'd recover from that now, wouldn't he? Yeah. Which, you know, I did like it when Wolverine had you know, limitations.
0: Yeah, well, there's the thing here where they've burned all the skin off so there's nothing to come yeah, well, from. Yeah, well,
1: not only that, they've burned all the skin and presumably his brain and heart and everything. Yeah. So there's nothing to regenerate. Even
0: even with his no limitations. Even with, oh.
1: the, even with the fact now that you can rip him in half and, and all cut that Cut his stuff. head off. Yeah. You can How stab can... him, beat him, brittle and amuse him, set him on fire, will amuse him. How can you
0: you actually rip him in half or cut his head off if, it's if he's got, got an adamantium, adamantium skeleton? Yeah. yeah.
1: I didn't understand that. There's a bit in Age of Ultron where he's got no flesh on his leg from the knee down and he's waiting for it to regenerate. And there's a part of me that even thinks, that's a little bit too far mm. for me. Once the entire flesh, bone, sinew and stuff has been torn off his leg, yeah. there's a part of me that's like, surely you wouldn't be able to regenerate that. But he'd still be able to operate, because yeah. his Admancian skeleton still working, so he just wouldn't have a fleshy leg. He wears a pair of pants, surely it's yeah. like having a prosthetic, <laughs> yeah. wouldn't it? But, you know, they've gotten ridiculous with Wolverine's powers now, haven't they? Uh, the Sentinels are actually a really effective villain mm. in this. They're really efficient. They kill Storm, Wolverine, and Colossus in just over a page.
0: Yeah, I like how you don't see them kill Colossus. Yeah, it's... But not... how when when he sees that Storm's dead and the next panel's outside, yeah. so you see... A sentinel Essential
1: flying out, flying out the window, which yeah is fantastic. And then it's just Rachel going, "He's dead," mm. and you don't actually see it happen. Yes, yeah, very effective. Um, Kitty and Kate share a brief kiss in the mind, obviously, as Kate hurtles back to the future, as mentioned above. This caused problems with the creative team. It it has to be said, it doesn't really make a lot of sense that they could coexist like that. Yeah but time travel is all made up so timey-wimey yeah oh, I don't
0: know ask, ask uh, James Cameron
1: yeah should I get in touch with, with <laughs> famous time travel expert James Cameron
0: what movie did he do with famous the
1: time, travel? time travel expert James Cameron who as you pointed out can't even follow the, his own rules of time travel what were his rules in the, the game before? at uh, Universal Studios in the 3D version they all time travel willy-nilly uh, nilly wearing clothes yeah and stuff and yeah. like, isn't that a well, big actually, part of the film? I completely forgot that everybody did Terminator. Yeah. Right. yeah. So he's done Terminator and Terminator 2. This makes him an expert on time travel. Of course, yeah. Of, of course. course, yeah. Despite the fact that he flatly contradicts himself in Terminator so 2. So many times. Where the first Terminator film clearly says, it, Kyle Reese clearly says... living... No, no, before that, right, okay. Kyle Reese clearly says we had won. Yeah. The war was over. This was the Terminator's last ditch attempt at victory. Yeah. So, where did the second Terminator come from? And where did the third Terminator come from?
0: Well, with the second one as well. The point of the first one is the cl- they can't work clothes because only living things can pass mm-hmm. through. So, why is he liquid metal?
1: Liquid metal can presumably fake living tissue. <laughs> can really? Apparently so, within the confines of. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. It's so a noted time travel expert, yeah. James Cameron. Fiddles with time travel whenever it suits him but everyone everyone forgets this because uh, you know it
0: giving James Cameron this much respect Mm. makes it you know if you you can get in touch with James I've got a new
1: movie coming out time travel put your name on it for us (laughs) no I see I don't mind that it's just The Terminator is a damn near perfect film in terms of its structure and construction on its own yeah and all of the sequel, sequels have done nothing but diminish the original and then the TV show was well, contradicts yeah, everything I mean the TV show was entertaining enough but I would sacrifice all of that mm. just to have one Terminator film and forget the rest there's a part of me wishes the Terminator had flopped yeah. so that we'd never got any other sequels or anything much mm. as I enjoy Terminator 2 yeah. it doesn't work within the confines of the first movie in any way no. and we kind of forgive it because it's an entertaining movie Mm. And we kind of forgive the third one, because it's got a brilliant ending. Yeah. But the first film is an almost perfect movie that I don't think gets its <laughs> its respect, because it's a B-grade science fiction film. Yeah. But I don't think you should be consulting James Cameron about time <laughs> travel when there are n- numerous problems with all the films. Yes. But anyway, we're not talking about that, we're talking about this. The bookshelf edition reprint of Days of Future Past, which uh, I bought in the mid-90s, has the last page of the story omitted. Yeah. It ended with, uh, I do not know, Warren. Cliché though it sounds, only time will tell. That's where it ended, so it didn't have that last page. Fair enough. I don't know why. I don't know why they cut the last page off.
0: The last page that pretty much says that all this effort was for no reason whatsoever. Yes, Sentinels, it are, being Sentinels anyway. are being created anyway. Sentinels are being created anyway. Unless it ended with, do reprint this now? And instead of saying the sens- they're going to create Sentinels, they say they're going to create Ultron. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, Hank Pym's not going to create Ultron in Avengers 2. Yeah. So, anyway, uh, the ending to this was nicely ambiguous. I do have to say, I find the president's role a bit dubious. Yeah. As usual, the face is obscured, which I agree with. The the minute you actually show a functioning, serving president in your comic book story, it dates it horribly. So I always like the face being obscured because it works whenever you're reading it, even though this is set in 1980. Yeah. And the future stuff is set in 2013, yeah. which is where we are now. The story still works, doesn't it? It mm-hmm. still works quite happily, because this timeline never happened. Yeah. So maybe 2013 would have been like that had this story happened. But the president actually points out that the X-Men saved this guy's life, so he's a hypocrite,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and his proposal is unconstitutional, dangerous and criminal a draconian attitude to someone who owes his life to mutants. The president actually says that in the story and still goes along with the creation of the Sentinels programme, which surely could lead to impeachment if this was ever discovered. And it would be discovered, because these things always are, maybe years down the line, but it would be discovered. I would have preferred this ending if the president had overruled Kelly and he and Guy Richard had gone along with it anyway without the president knowing Mm. I'd have bought that a lot more. Making the president culpable in this doesn't really work for me. I don't know why, it just doesn't doesn't sit still with me. This was one of the first X-Men comics I ever read in... UK reprint form thanks to the Mighty World of Marvel monthly issue number one. Mighty World of Marvel was a landmark UK comic for a number of reasons. One, it was the first Marvel UK title launching in 1972 with Spider-Man, the Hulk and the Fantastic Four and it managed to run almost continuously until 1984. It was many a school child's introduction to the Marvel universe and is still published today albeit in significantly different form. This story was first printed in Mighty World of Marvel Volume 2 Issue 1 in 1983 when the comic went monthly and had a cardstock cover and crucially was in full colour an incredible rarity for UK comics it cost a whopping 65 pence which was whopping when you consider a US comic only cost 25p Mm. which may have ultimately led to its downfall. Seems like such a small price now. Yeah, such a a tiny price now. In addition, the colour printing was atrocious, another reason for its ultimate fate. What was interesting about Mighty World of Marvel was it published miniseries as backups that didn't normally get to the UK, and these first issues featured the Vision and Scarlet Witch Mini and had a free sticker of Cyclops, who didn't actually appear in the story. But Cyclops sells. I think Wolfram probably sells more, but uh, whatever. The problem with this, the second part of a two part story, is it doesn't have quite the same impact as part one. Mm. Whereas the first part threw the reader straight into the action with nary a clue as to what was going on, this has to explain what happened in part one and the present day events and the dialogue, it has to be said, isn't quite as natural for the first few pages as the recap boxes. Exposit all about the plot, the Brotherhood, and recaps the cliffhanger. Still, I think this is as good as comics get, and one of the many reasons the legend of the X Men and Clermont Byrne and Austin's run in particular still loom large. There's the usual issues that you can pick out with this being time travel, e.g., after Kate is sent back, there should be no more future scenes because her success wipes that timeline out. But this really is the almost perfect comic book storytelling, albeit of its time. But were it scored, is that unlike a number of X-Men stories down the line, this is clear, coherent and understandable. A reader can pick this up, read it, put it down and has everything they need to enjoy a complete and satisfying X-Men adventure. The art is perfect Byrne and Austin at the peak of their powers and the level of detail in each panel is astonishing. This is to be the basis of the upcoming X-Men prequel sequel, as I mentioned at the top of the show. And it would almost be possible to do a literal adaptation of this in movie form. The opening scenes would have to be different, and there are a few characters that don't jibe with the movies. But the flash-forward scenes could be transferred verbatim. I doubt that they'll do that, God forbid we should actually get a movie adaptation that changes nothing for the sake of it. But it would be nice if they did do a proper adaptation of this story. What did you think of part 2, Michael?
0: I didn't enjoy it as much as part 1 because it just seemed like all the great stuff that was building up in part 1 just went away with a big fight.
1: Yeah, but you do kind of have the thing that well, how else was it gonna end? Well, yeah, yeah, I I knew it was gonna
0: end with a fight, but that was kind of disappointing really. After the setup.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it is it is part 1 is better than part 2, but it does work
0: as a complete story. That's right. Whenever whenever I um always read it because sometimes I'm surprised and say like, oh it was two issues Cause mm. I, I always just read the first part that was it yeah well that's the comic that you got
1: free with the action figure yeah. so you didn't get part two and I, I was fine with that you, you know? see my big surprise going back to this was that it is only two issues like so nowadays this would be a 12 issue miniseries yeah
0: and probably wouldn't be as good you know, when I was doing the notes um, back to how good the run is after I did the notes for Days Future Pass, I looked at next Demon thought you know what I'll just read
1: on well we covered Demon not long ago yeah. so we, we have now done the final three we should just go backwards <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we should do Dark <laughs> Phoenix next and then do whatever was before Dark Phoenix and just go backwards through the Burn Austin Claremont stuff uh, anyway that's it for this week we hope you enjoyed it I know I did next time on an all new episode of Hey Kids Comics either the Wolverine miniseries finally notes have been started so they will definitely happen this time to time to both movies yeah or q and I've not decided which way around we're going to do them. Right, okay. so next week you get what you're given Basically. I'll yeah. be happy with it. Sir. And you'll be happy with it. Right, okay, thank you very much. Thank you for joining us. Uh, you know the email address if you want to drop us an email and we'll see you next week with whatever it is we decide to do. Yes. Good night. Good night. The devil will find work for idle hands to do production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only, and no infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money. Certainly, this show was not turned into a lucrative revenue stream, as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com and Hey Kids Comics is a part of the Two True Freaks internet radio network, your one-stop shop for a plethora of truly fine shows. Join in the fun. We have a website where you can see the covers of the comics we've covered at www.haykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word, as the first name and comics as the surname. We also have a forum, www.forumforgeeks.com. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics.